The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 115th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And on this episode, we're going to be up near New York City at North Brother Island. This was suggested to us by our listener, Amy Consolation, and it was researched by April Rogers Crick. And Denise, this is one of those locations where it's harder to find out about the hauntings associated with it simply because it's a creepy, creepy, creepy abandoned island. Ooh, but we like creepy, creepy, creepy abandoned islands. Exactly. Anytime a place is abandoned, it already gives you that spooky feeling and you just know that there's got to be some stories associated with it. But unfortunately, when places are abandoned and trespassing is illegal it's harder for us to find out what's going on there. So we don't have a whole lot when it comes to the hauntings, but this has a very, very rich history, which includes one of the worst tragedies in American history and a person called Typhoid Mary, which many of you have probably heard about. So I think you're going to enjoy this episode. Denise, before we get into that, we'd like to point people over to our website, historygoesbump.com. If they want to send us some feedback, how can they do that? They're going to do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. And we do have an email that we want to share with everybody that we got from David Robinson. This is the listener who actually suggested the USS Lexington to us. And we asked a question on the episode, you might recall, about how in the world did they make sure that the milk and the eggs were kept cold or fresh? And Denise suggested that perhaps they had some cows on board. Maybe some chickens too, Denise? Yeah, I kind of liked my answer. At least it was outside of the box. Well, David gave us the real answer. So here is the correct answer. Hey, ladies, thanks so much for the episode. Charlie, wow. Regarding the food and stuff, the Navy has what is called replenishment at sea, where another ship steams up beside the Lex or whatever ship, and they shoot lines across and went food over ammunition, people, on the bosun's chair, and they also transfer fuel hoses across from tanker ships and refuel. They stay the same course and speed while doing this, maybe 30 yards apart, going 12 to 16 knots. It's like a ballet with boats. So thank you very much for that. So that kind of sounds like refueling in the air, only a little bit more extensive. And keeping with the Lexington episode, Amy Harris-Martinez shared with us in the Spooktacular crew, I am thoroughly freaked out right now. 
Just a casual Saturday afternoon, cleaning house, listening to my podcasts, the most recent about the Lexington, so I was super stoked, both in my home state of Texas and my dad's hometown of Corpus Christi, and a place I've actually been to. Anyway, when a person sees a ghost, it can surely be chilling. But imagine being someone who saw one and didn't know it was a ghost until the podcast. (laughs) I'm talking about Charlie. I had no idea that the Lex was even haunted. I've got to find all my pics and see if there's anything weird and have a talk with my dad for not warning me. Ugh, you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're sorry to uh, spook you out there, Amy. She shared some fabulous pictures that she took in person when she toured the Lexington in the spooktacular crew. And Denise, it was really neat to get to see what it looked like on the inside where the guys bunked, not very big to see some of the planes, the Hellcats that they had featured up there on top of the carrier. And it was just very cool. So then Denise, I had commented back to her, wow, what if you'd seen Charlie? Then she said, oh my, I have chills. The man I saw was in a white Navy uniform and looked to be in his 20s and had pretty blue eyes. He was talking to someone when my husband and I entered an area and I just looked at him and said, oh, excuse me, because I wasn't expecting anyone to just be hanging out. He didn't really respond to me, just nodded his head and kept talking. I'll just have to see if I can find pics of him or more descriptions because that's just weird. I do remember feeling very strange in a few places, almost like I was being squeezed and I felt dizzy. I wish I'd known then. Well, maybe I don't. (laughs) And it actually is kind of cool that she didn't know and experienced some weird feelings because then you can't go with the idea that she already had a predisposition to expect something haunting to happen to her. So for her to have weird feelings in a place that she didn't know was haunted gives it a little bit more validity. Well, especially when those weird feelings and sighting kind of matches up with what we found most people see, the apparition of Charlie. Yeah, and so I commented after that, I said, he fits the description, dot, dot, dot. So thanks for sharing that with us, Amy. And then we also had Karen Malay on the website. Love the show. I walk four miles every day and your podcast always comes with me. When I saw that today's podcast was about the Lexington, I couldn't get my walking shoes on fast enough. When I was a teenager, A long time ago, my family used to visit Pensacola on vacation, so I have toured the Lady Lex a few times. Who knew many years later my son would attend college in Corpus Christi, Texas, where the Lex is now. I haven't had any experiences yet, but my son's going to be in Corpus for a few more years, and his ROTC regimen puts on a haunted house on the Lex every year. So I look forward to it. So that was very cool information to find that out because I had no idea that they host a haunted house for Halloween. So what a great time to visit. Nellie Johnson and the Spooktacular crew posted. So I went on a mini break with some friends on the night we were supposed to do a ghost tour. One of the girls got sick. So we bought junk food and had a sleepover in the hotel. That sounds like fun. We thought to stay in the mood that the night was supposed to be in. We tell ghost stories. Thank you for your podcast. I scared the crap out of my friends. They actually had to beg me to stop. Without your amazing Urban Legend episode, that would not have gone as well as it did. Ha ha ha. Well, you're very welcome, Nellie. We're glad that you were able to share the spookiness with other people. And I wanted to share yet another podcast that I've discovered. I know when you have eight to 10 hours a day to listen to podcasts and a lot of podcasts only post once a week or every other week, you have to find a lot of new material out there. I'm and this so jealous of all you all that get to do that. <laughs> they don't let me do that at work. No, you actually have to like get on the phone and stuff there. But this is not a brand new podcast. This has been around for a while. But as people like to tell us, Denise, I just discovered it, kind of bumped into it. It's called Expanded Perspective. And I really enjoy the hosts 
and they deal with a lot of the paranormal type stuff, oddities, weird things, urban legends. But there's a lot of variety in what they cover because, Denise, for me, I get kind of bored with the UFO stuff. I'm just I'm not really into the UFO thing. And a lot of paranormal shows focus on that a lot. And so it's kind of well, neat. They to... ask a lot of probing questions. Ha ha ha. Denise, thank you for that one. Now that everybody's had that fabulous <laughs> visual. You're welcome. Anyway, if you guys are into that kind of stuff, the weird, the oddities, uh, mysterious stuff, maybe even some conspiratorial stuff, I uh, suggest that you check out Expanded Perspectives with an S there. We want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Keith. Hey, Keith. Welcome. And Denise, I just wanted to share another highlight for us. When we first started the podcast back in October of 2014, we got 972 downloads that month. We didn't even hit 1,000. And we thought we were really rocking it. We were like, oh my gosh. Denise, we have had over 400,000 downloads of the show right now that, in total. That just completely blows my mind. That is a lot of downloads. And I know we say it a lot, but I just want to really thank all the listeners because it's you all downloading, listening, sharing the show being a part of the Spectacular crew, meeting us on meetups, and just being the awesome people you are is the reason why we are where we're at. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Denise, are you ready to sail on over to North Brother Island? I certainly am. Better bring a flashlight because there's definitely no electricity over here. Oh, I cannot go there. It'd be creepy. Become an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast for as little as a buck a month. For $5 a month, you can access exclusive content like the Haunted True Crime Bonus Cast. And for $10 and above a month, you get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash historygoesbump for more information. Or you can give us a one-time donation by clicking the donate button at historygoesbump.com. History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to this moment in oddity. For anyone who has been scuba diving or snorkeling, you know that the ocean is a noisy place. The same is true for outer space. The movie Alien had the tagline, In space, no one can hear you scream. But does that really mean space is silent? In actuality, interstellar space can be quite noisy. Space sound comes in the form of waves of electrons in plasma. Humans cannot hear the plasma waves, but space probes like Voyager can pick up the waves and transmit them in frequencies that we can detect. Solar events usually are the catalyst for these plasma waves, but NASA has also released the sounds of planets. That's right, planets make noise, and these waves are creepy as hell. Here is Uranus. And then there's Jupiter. And here is Neptune. 
And then even our home Earth has a noise. The fact that space is noisy and planets make noise certainly is odd. Welcome. We have been expecting you. Day in history. And this day in history is brought to us by Stephen Pappas. On this day, March 30th in 1981, President Ronald Reagan was shot by a would-be assassin. The 22 caliber bullet pierced his chest and hit his left lung, narrowly missing his heart. Secret Service men jumped on top of the president and threw him into the presidential limousine. At first, no one knew that Reagan was hit. The president thought that he had broken a rib. A Secret Service agent saw blood on Reagan's lips. They rushed him to the hospital. In an amazing feat of resilience, he walked into George Washington Hospital under his own power, even though he was a 70-year-old man who had a collapsed lung. As he was being prepared for surgery, he was reported to be in good spirits. He told his wife, Nancy, Sorry, honey, I forgot to duck and told his surgeons he hoped they were Republicans. He resumed some of his duties from his hospital bed the next day before returning to the White House on April 11th. Press Secretary James Brady was shot as well and left in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. The shooter was arrested and was found to be 25-year-old John Hinckley Jr. He argued for insanity and was institutionalized after being found not guilty by reason of insanity. His motive was to impress actress Jodie Foster, with whom he was obsessed and whom he had been stalking. Hinckley is still in an institution, but he gets to leave on unsupervised visits with his family. You're listening to History Goes Bump! North Brother Island has a rich history that is still reflected in its abandoned landscapes and buildings. This is an island off of New York and now owned by New York. New York City saw the worst tragedy in American history on September 11, 2001. Before that day, the worst tragedy was the sinking of the General Slocum, which has connections to North Brother Island. The island also was home to the Riverside Hospital, a quarantine hospital for those suffering from horrible and contagious diseases like smallpox. Many died there. And for 23 years, Typhoid Mary called this island home. There are rumors that the island is not completely abandoned. Spirits seem to have remained. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of North Brother Island. North and South Brother Island, or the Brothers, as they are commonly called, are a pair of islands located in New York City's East River between Rikers Island and the Bronx. In 1614, both islands were claimed by the Dutch West India Company and were named De Gesellen, which means the Companions in English. South Brother Island was privately owned until the city bought it in 2007. North Brother Island is currently uninhabited and is a designated bird sanctuary. 
1614, after the Dutch West India Company claimed North Brother Island, it remained uninhabited because of the strong currents near the island that were dangerous. In 1871, the city of Morsenina, located in the Bronx, purchased North Brother Island, and the Sisters of Charity built a tuberculosis hospital there. The hospital was closed in 1885 when New York City purchased the island and built Riverside Hospital to treat all manners of quarantinable diseases like typhoid, typhus, yellow fever, diphtheria, measles, scarlet fever, polio, and tuberculosis. All would be housed in separate pavilions. Many of the patients from Renwick Smallpox Hospital on Roosevelt Island were relocated to North Brother Island once the new facility was built. A ferry located at 132nd Street in the Bronx transported staff, patients, and supplies to the island. Still, the island remained extremely isolated. Telephone and telegraph lines were not installed until as late as 1894. There were many dangers transporting stricken patients in the winter, and much criticism was voiced after a six-month-old baby infected with measles perished en route to the island. During the turn of the century, overcrowding was a major issue when outbreaks occurred, and large outbreaks of highly contagious diseases were commonplace in this time. Everyday medical instruments were in short supply and were not cleaned or sterilized properly between frequent uses. Tents were used when no more beds could fit in the pavilions. The cloth enclosures were precariously heated, Denise, with wood-burning stoves during those harsh New York winters, and a few eventually wound up in flames. The hospital had about 1,200 people in quarantine during an 1892 typhus outbreak. In 1905, a steamship called the General Slocum caught fire near the island. The General Slocum worked as a passenger ship, taking people on excursions around New York City. The ship had once been a grand steamship. By the early 1900s, it was in quick decline. The General Slocum was an all-white, three-decker vessel with large passenger salons, large passenger windows, and a hurricane deck with a three-foot rail for maximum viewing. Denise, I would just like to point out, we hear so many stories, especially recently, of people falling off of these cruise ships. Imagine a three-foot rail for maximum viewing. People are falling over when you've got rails that are almost up to our chins on cruise ships. I wonder how many people fell off of these ships. Especially once they had spirits and not the type, <laughs> type we talk about exactly, so much. Exactly, not the floating type. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. On Wednesday, June 15, 1904, St. Mark's Evangelical Lutheran Church had chartered the steamship for the day. Passengers numbered 1,400, and most of them were women and children, and from the same German neighborhood. As the ship passed East 90th Street, a fire started on the lamp room in the forward section. No one knows for sure what started the fire. A young boy of about 12 was the first to discover the fire, and he tried to warn the captain. The captain yelled at the boy to leave him alone and continued on without checking on the claim. Hence why I don't agree that children should be seen and not heard. Apparently, and you know what, kids will make up stories, but still, to have a child come running in and going, um, there's a fire over here, at least send somebody to check it out. 
Right. Even if you don't think it's true, just send one of the ship hands or something. Can you go see what that kid's talking about? The General Slocum was in poor condition and safety equipment had not been maintained. Now, we've heard in the past when we talk about the sinking of the Titanic, there was a lot of people who were upset because there wasn't enough lifeboats on board the ship. Well, imagine if you can't even get those lifeboats off of the ship. Doesn't matter how many lifeboats you have. Let's say you can't even get any of them to work. And on top of that, a lot of people froze to death uh, that were on board the Titanic that went into the water. Denise, even though they had life jackets on, they were in the water for too long. Right. And hypothermia and all sorts of things set in. Imagine if those life jackets didn't work. So here's how well this ship was maintained. And this is why we have the rules in place that we do. And I'm thankful for them. Fire hoses had rotted and fell apart when the crew tried to put out the fire. The 10 lifeboats had been wired to the wall and then painted over so that they were rendered useless. Survivors reported the life preservers were useless and fell apart in their hands. And even worse, just listening to this for a lot of you mothers out there, I just, I can't even imagine how horrific this would be. It almost brings you to tears just to hear this. Desperate mothers placed life vests on their children and tossed them into the water only to watch them sink instead of float. So imagine that you are tossing your child off because fire's all around you. You may even be on fire yourself. You think you're saving your child and they're drowned. It's just, I, I mean, who was in charge of this ship and maintaining this crap? Oh God, that just even now makes me sick to my stomach just thinking of those poor mothers and all these poor people on there that were trying to get safety equipment and it was just... Oh, the mm. crew was helpless to do anything. I mean, what could they do? They can't put the fire out. They can't get the boats in the water. Telling people to put on their life vests, what does that matter? Like most Americans of the time, on top of this, the women and children on board could not swim. This was not something, you know, most of the time parents have their children swimming from almost the time they're infants. People just didn't learn how to swim back then, really. And then think on top of that, they've got all that clothing they used to wear at that time. So you've got the period clothing, which is not well suited to swimming and helping you to stay afloat. Just a horrible tragedy. Instead of immediately running aground, the captain decided to continue the course. His reasoning involved insurance. There were gas tanks and lumber yards near the shoreline where he could bring the ship to shore. The winds fanned the flame as the burning vessel continued sailing forward. By the time the General Slocum sank in shallow water at North Brother Island, 1,021 people had either burned to death or drowned. There were only 321 survivors. There were many acts of heroism among the passengers, witnesses, and emergency personnel. Staff and patients from Riverside Hospital participated in the rescue, forming human chains and pulling victims from the water. This remained one of the largest losses of life at one time for America until September 11, 2001. And the second one, as many of you may know, was Pearl Harbor. Yeah, that's all I can think of. You've got September 11th, of course, would have the largest Pearl Harbor and then the General Slocum. And I can't think of any other tragedies that we've had outside of those that would reach those kinds of numbers. If we're wrong, some listener out there, let us know. But I'm thinking those are the top three. So just imagine, especially this is... And we are talking outside of war or battles. Oh, well, yeah, if you're talking about American war. So, yes, this would be some kind of tragedy, a tragic event, something like that. Yeah, outside of war. What would you call, you know, then actually this would be the second... Well, it's hard to say because most people would say September 11th was a war. 
because it's part of the war on terrorism. So it is kind of hard to say, well, Pearl Harbor was because of a war. September 11th was because of a war. So the General Slocum is completely outside of that scope. So it might be the largest outside of war tragedy that ever happened in America. Yeah, and I'm, I'm trying to think because we've had a lot of huge fires, you know, in New Orleans, San Francisco, Chicago. And off the top of my head, I can't think of the loss of life there. But suffice it to say that the General Slocum was pretty major. And at that time, it was just, it was at that time, I think, the worst tragedy America had had. The most infamous patient at Riverside Hospital was a woman named Mary Mallon, who came to be known as Typhoid Mary. Mary Mallon immigrated to the United States from Ireland in 1883 at the age of 15. She lived with her aunt and uncle for a short time until she found work as a cook for affluent families. From 1900 to 1907, Mary worked in the New York City area for seven different families. Beginning in 1900, Mary worked for a family in Mamoronic, New York, and I hope I said that right. Within two weeks of her employment, people developed typhoid fever. In 1901, she'd moved to Manhattan, where again, members of the family she worked for developed fevers and diarrhea, and the laundress died. She then went to work for a lawyer. She left after seven of the eight people in the household became ill. She then took a position in Oyster Bay, Long Island in 1906. Again, within two weeks, 10 out of the 11 family members were hospitalized with typhoid fever. She changed jobs, and at three more households, the same thing happened. A wealthy New York banker, Charles Henry Warren, hired her as a cook for his family when they rented a house in Oyster Bay for the summer of 1906. From August 27th to September 3rd, Six of the 11 people of the family came down with typhoid fever. At the time, typhoid was considered unusual in Oyster Bay, according to three medical doctors who practiced there. Mary was subsequently hired by many other families, and outbreaks of typhoid followed each of her employments. And through all of this, Mary herself never became ill. Late in 1906, one of the families hired a typhoid researcher, George Soper, to investigate the outbreak. Soper discovered that an Irish female cook who fit the physical description he was given was involved in all of the outbreaks. The cook was described as an Irish woman about 40 years old, tall, heavy, walked with a manly gait, unmarried, and seemed to be in perfect health. The woman was hard to locate as she generally left after an outbreak began and never left a forwarding address. Soper learned of an active outbreak in a penthouse on Park Avenue and discovered the cook was Mary Mallon. Two of the household servants were hospitalized, and the daughter of the family died of typhoid fever. When he approached Mary about her possible role in spreading typhoid, she adamantly refused to give blood, urine, and stool samples. He then compiled a five-year history of Mary's employment. Soper found that seven of the eight families that had hired Mary as a cook claimed to have contracted typhoid fever. Again, he tried to get samples from Mary, even bringing another doctor with him. Again, she turned him away. Finally, the New York City Health Department sent a female physician, Sarah Josephine Baker, to talk to Mary. Dr. Baker said that by that time, Mary was convinced that the law was only persecuting her when she had done nothing wrong. She refused to cooperate in any way. A few days later, Dr. Baker arrived at Mary's place of employment with several police officers who took her into custody. Mary admitted to poor hygiene, saying she did not understand the purpose of hand washing because she did not pose a risk. Denise, can you imagine a cook saying they don't understand the purpose of hand washing? Ugh, these people are lucky that all they got was typhoid. 
Well, of course, that was back then before we kind of do what we do now. But but still, I what if I don't know. I mean, she was not sick and therefore did not understand how she could have anything to do with the typhoid outbreaks, <laughs> except for maybe that she was at every family that got them. But other than that, you know, in prison, she was forced to give blood, urine and stool samples. Doctors found a significant nidus of typhoid bacteria in her gallbladder. She became the first documented case of a seemingly healthy person being a carrier of the typhoid bacteria. It was suggested that she have her gallbladder removed. The surgery would have basically cured her, but Mary refused because she did not believe she carried the disease. Mary also refused to stop working as a cook. The fact that somebody can be healthy and a carrier of a disease is true for me. I have never, ever had strep throat, but I have given strep throat to every person I've ever kissed, pretty much. Except. Except you. <laughs> there you you go. were the only one. So, and everybody I know has had strep at least once. And I used to go in and get throat cultures all the time because I think I'd have it. So I am a carrier of strep throat, but I've never had it. See, I had it as a child, but never as an adult. Thank you. Eventually, the New York health inspector determined Mary was a menace and needed to be quarantined. Under sections 1169 and 1170 of the Greater New York Charter, Mary was held at a clinic located on North Brother Island in isolation for three years. Eventually, the New York State Commissioner of Health, Eugene H. Porter, decided that disease carriers should no longer be kept in isolation. Mary could be freed if she agreed to stop working as a cook and take reasonable steps to prevent transmitting typhoid to others. Mary agreed that she was, quote, prepared to change her occupation and would give assurance by affidavit that upon her release, she would take such hygienic precautions as to protect those with whom she came in contact from infection, end quote. She was released from quarantine and returned to the mainland on February 19, 1910. Mary was given a job as a laundress, which paid less than cooking. After trying unsuccessfully for several years working as a laundress, she's changed her name to Mary Brown and returned to cooking. No one had told her that she couldn't change her name and she needed to make more money. For the next five years, she worked in a number of kitchens and wherever she worked, there were outbreaks of typhoid once again. Mary started another major outbreak in 1915, this time at Sloan's Hospital for Women in New York City. 25 people were infected and two died. She left her job, but the police were able to locate and arrest her when she brought food to a friend on Long Island. On March 27th, after arresting her, public health authorities returned her to quarantine on North Brother Island. Still unwilling to have her gallbladder removed, Mary remained confined to the island for the remainder of her life. Mary did have her own little cottage and a dog. She was allowed to garden and cook only for herself. Eventually, she gained trust and was given a job in the hospital laboratory washing glass bottles. She was allowed to take short-day excursions off the island and into the city to shop and visit family and friends. She was required to return to the island each evening. On Christmas Day, 1932, a man delivering a package to Mary found her lying on the floor of her cottage unable to walk. She'd had a stroke. For the next six years, Mary remained in the hospital until her death in 1938. During the 1930s, new hospitals that were more equipped to deal with patients with contagious diseases sprang up all around on the mainland. With the development of better medications and medical practices, people with contagious diseases no longer needed to be quarantined for such long periods of time. The large number of outbreaks that had plagued the city in the late 19th century and early 20th century were no longer a problem. 
a large tuberculosis pavilion was constructed on the island in 1943. Due to the lack of staff and personnel required to operate the additional facility, the pavilion was never used to house tuberculosis patients. This building is the only one that is not horribly deteriorated. The island was then leased to the state and the building was used as a dormitory to house veterans and their families after returning from service in World War II. By 1951, the buildings once again stood empty as the veterans and their families grew sick of the daily commute and had moved off the island where cheaper housing had been found for them. In 1952, the city once again took control of the island. Plans were made to use the hospital as a rehabilitation center for heroin addicts. This idea was to get adolescents far away from the overcrowded jails and hospitals filled with hardened criminals, with a maximum stay of six months. The tuberculosis pavilion was converted to treat 100 boys and 50 girls, placed there by their parents or the court system. New admissions were searched for drugs and bathed, then they were placed in observation wards as they went through withdrawal, cold turkey. Yee, for heroin, that is amazing. Woof. If the symptoms were too severe, they were tapered off the drug. The doors to many of the rooms had heavy deadbolts and sheet metal reinforcement added to them to seclude the patients and help manage them during withdrawal. In 1963, Riverside Hospital closed. The city had decided it was impractical to continue operations there. The official word was that it was too expensive and there was plenty of cheaper locations available on the mainland. When the last inhabitants, drug patients, doctors, and staff left the island, it once again became uninhabited and Mother Nature took over. Once the island was abandoned, it became a bird sanctuary. From 1980 to sometime in the 2000s, the island was a nesting ground to the black-crowned night heron. But by 2008, for unknown reasons, the heron also abandoned the island and no longer nests there. Did something scare the endangered birds away? The hospital and pavilions, elementary school with school items still in the building, nurse and physician housing, and tennis and handball court are still standing on the island, although they are in differing states of decay. In 2014, a group of city officials ventured to the island. Their objective was to evaluate the situation and determine if the island could possibly be cleaned up and opened as a public park. It was determined that further evaluation was needed to see if the buildings could be salvaged. Although the island is not open to the public at this time, it is open to the City Parks Department for maintenance. Recently, the Parks Department has cleared a new path around the entire island. Someday they hope to open the island buildings and wood as a park for the public to enjoy. North Brother Island seems to have not been entirely abandoned. Spirits from the past have quite possibly made this island their home in the afterlife. The most famous of these is Typhoid Mary. She felt she was not dealt with in a fair manner, and that may be why her spirit has remained behind. New York alone had an estimated 90 healthy carriers of the disease each year, and several of those people led to others getting sick and even some deaths. Tony Labella is thought to have sickened 122 people, while Mary only passed the disease on to 47. Why was she treated more harshly? Many think it was because she was considered a nobody and she was Irish. Because of this, one can imagine that her spirit is angry. Her cottage had been demolished upon her death, and so she walks the halls of Riverside Hospital. Trespassers have claimed to see a woman who wanders the corridors and rooms of the crumbling hospital. But even before that, when the hospital was still in use, staff members claimed to see a strange woman in the hospital wearing clothes from another era. An orderly once followed the woman down a hall and watched her walk into a room. He assumed one of the patients had gotten out of their rooms. He entered the room and, much to his shock, 
No one was there. And I can definitely see her being angry that she was treated differently than somebody else doing the same thing. So, because I think he should have been treated exactly the same way any of the carriers, if they knew and were willingly spreading the disease. As far as I can tell from the historical research, she's the only one that was placed in this kind of isolation. And if their estimates are right, because they don't know for sure that 90 people were carrying it each year. And it wasn't like all those people were quarantined to some place or quarantined all to North Brother Island. Only she was. So I can understand why she was a little upset. Yes, because, again, you know, the first one I would agree with her having to kind of be responsible for her actions. But then again, I also think that the other, if it was 90, the other 89 people should have suffered the same fate as her. And of course, that number 47 is a pretty basic number. It just is how many people they could count from the families that she'd worked on. But again, who knows how many it could have passed on to and how many people she could have sickened on the street where she just, I don't know exactly how typhoid passed, but I'm assuming it's bodily fluid. So if she coughed or sneezed or spit or something, who knows? Abandoned places are spooky and creepy in and of themselves. The tragedy of the General Slocum has made North Brother Island that much creepier. People who lived on the island for years following the disaster claimed to see shadowy and haunting figures walking the beaches and wandering the grounds of Riverside Hospital. They wept as they seemed to look for loved lost ones and perhaps for their own lost lives. Some were more clearly seen than others. Was the woman seen at the hospital, Typhoid Mary? Are the victims of the General Slocum tragedy still looking for their loved ones in the afterlife? Is North Brother Island haunted? That is for you to decide. And there have been a couple of photographers that have been allowed to go over to the island and take pictures. And we do have a link to just one spot that I found that had a ton of pictures of the abandoned buildings and the island. Very cool to look at. I enjoy looking at a lot of these abandoned places that are deteriorating. I don't know. It must be the same thing about me that makes me a taphophile and I enjoy cemeteries. I just like that kind of stuff. But even if you were to just Google, you'll get a ton of things that will come up. Generally, it's one of these two photographers that have been over there and just very cool to check out those pictures. Also, April, when she was doing the research, pointed out to me that the Bowery Boys, who I know a lot of our listeners probably listen to, I like to listen to them, they focus entirely on New York's history. They did two episodes. Number 166 was on the General Slocum disaster, and number 190 was The Curious Case of Typhoid Mary, and I've listened to both of those. They were both excellent, and I didn't know that much about Typhoid Mary until I listened to their episode. And it was just fascinating because I did not know that somebody could be a healthy carrier of a disease like typhoid. And I didn't really know that much about typhoid, Mary. It's a term that we use a lot nowadays, but I don't know that many people know the woman or the history that pertained to that and why they called her that name. It's just fascinating to find out the true history. And these guys get into more of the details behind that. So if you want to get a little bit more information on that, I suggest you check those episodes out. I thank you for checking out this episode. Our next one is going to feature Moundsville Prison. This was suggested to us by our listeners, Josh and Sarah Kitchen. They are paranormal investigators. And actually, Josh is going to join us on the next show because they've been to this location several times. 
And it's always nice to get that eyewitness perspective, Denise. So we're going to get that from Josh, and he's going to share some of the haunting experiences that they've had in those locations. So looking forward to that. And then also, I just want to remind all you spectacular people that we do have several meetups coming up this spring. This is the spring of 2016. So be sure to let us know if you're going to join us. First, we have going on the weekend of April 16th, 2016, either Fridays or Sunday night, we're going to be doing a haunted pub crawl in Denver, Colorado in the Lodo area. So we are trying to get our group together. So be sure to contact us if you're interested in being part of that. And then April 23rd, we are doing the Dark of the Moon Tour, which is the St. Augustine Lighthouse Tour in Florida. And so, again, let us know if you'll be meeting us up there. We need to have people start getting their tickets and booking their spots for that. And then in June, we are going to go to the Haunted America Conference, and that's going to be June 24th and 25th, 2016, in Alton, Illinois. We are going to break away on Friday night on the 24th to do the St. Charles Ghost Tour in St. Charles, Missouri. So we would love to have you join us at the conference at the tour or at both and we know several people are going there so if you want to meet some of your other spectacular people please let us know so those are the three up and coming and they're all coming in within the next month or so and we do have a couple of reviews over at itunes this one's from chelsea ms five star awesome podcast i love listening to this podcast while i'm at work Makes the day go by much faster. I learn a lot of fascinating information, followed by some creepy tales that I may or may not just happen to think about right before I go to bed. <laughs> Oops. Keep up the great work, Diana Denise. Well, Chelsea, try not to think about them right before you go to bed. But thank you for your review. <laughs> and we have Adams 529, five star, like listening to your friends tell ghost stories. I'm an avid podcast listener, and I have to say one of the best things about this podcast, beyond the detailed research, fascinating stories, and delightful guests, is the hosts. These ladies are not only engaging and knowledgeable, they are totally in love with their subject and really care about listener experience. They start each episode welcoming new listeners, and after a few, you start to feel like you're a part of a community. Come for the ghost stories, stay for the fantastic hosts. Well, thank you so much, Adam. We appreciate that. And from the UK, we have Mina in England, five star, interesting and informative. Love this podcast. It gives a great mixture of paranormal and historical background on locations of interest. The hosts have a great report and I feel the pace of the show is good. So I'm able to absorb as much information as possible. Keep up the good work, ladies. Well, thanks so much, Mina. We appreciate that. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode was brought to you by our executive producers. Thank you. Fan of the show? Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast catcher. We would greatly appreciate your review at iTunes as well to help the show grow. Thank you. Societies rise and societies fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Night Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bump, Listen, The M Writing Podcast, Society 13, Rebuilding Society, one podcast at a time.